Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, it's me, Luli, talking to you from Kosovo. I really appreciate your podcast. It means a lot. I do yoga with it. I hike and all this stuff. Um, yeah, man, it's fucking great having you around. In my fucking ears. And um, I learned a lot, even from your book. It changed my life. I don't hurt women anymore. I tell them straight up. What is my deal? Not the monogamous type. So it's great. I've been happy. I've been happy. Cheers. Hola Chris, this is Gerardo from La Ciudad de México. Et Julie de Montréal. And we're just finishing up a seventh month road trip around North America in our old Dodge camper van. And we would like to thank you because you've been there every step of the way. Special thanks because a couple of weeks ago we were in the desert of San Luis trying the grandfather Hikuri Peyote and it really changed our world. Uh, thank you for your podcast that opened our minds to have this experience and lots of love and good vibes to all. Adios. Mr. Christopher Ryan, what's going on, buddy? I'm sending you guys a message here from Alajuela, Ecuador. I got married down here in April. And um, we're visiting my wife's grandparents out in the campo, the abuelos. I was in the lazy river and uh, head back to the house now. Anyway, hello to all the tangentially speaking listeners. And uh, Chris, love what you're doing. Keep on rocking in the free world, buddy. Ciao for now. Yeah, you guys, <clears throat> I'm so glad you're happy in Kosovo, in Ecuador, in Mexico, and wherever you are out there in the world. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's hard It's hard to be happy if you're hurting people, isn't it? Uh, you know, we can't help it. I know we hurt people no matter what. But um, I think it's kind of like eating meat. You know, you can approach it from a perspective of compassion and kindness and acknowledgement. And, and there is a sort of inherent sadness in, in some aspects of life, um, but they can be lessened by that honesty and transparency. And um, so, yeah, if you are not a monogamous person at this point in your life, you got to fess up to that whether you're in Kosovo or wherever the hell you are. Um, and uh, I guarantee you, whatever your perceived limitation is, whatever your trip is, whatever path you're on, and when I say limitation, I just mean that, you know, we can't all be everything all the time, right? You're When you're 22 years old, you're 22 years old. You're going to be limited by your lack of experience. Um, and yeah, I've always, I, I surround myself with young people who are wise 
in their acknowledgement of the fact that they're young. I don't know if that makes sense. I'll give you an example. My buddy, Kyle Tierman. When I'm having a conversation with Kyle Tierman, Kyle's, I think he just turned 30 this year. Um, when we're chatting about something and I use a word that he doesn't know, he asks me, what does that mean? And, you know, that's hard when you're a 30-year-old man and a writer and you're, it, it takes a certain amount of uh, humility. But what, what young people need to understand is that humility is the first step toward wisdom. And if you don't have that humility, if you don't have the strength of character to say, you know what, I don't know that word, or I don't know how to handle this relationship, or I don't know how to tell you what I feel, or I don't know how to, um, you know, move forward on a path that I'm not sure is my path. The first step is always admitting that you're lost, right? Uh, you know, don't be one of those sort of stereotypical guys who stop to ref refuse to stop to ask for directions. And so just keep getting more and more lost. Um, I don't know how the hell I got off on this tangent. I guess it was the guy from Kosovo who just uh, said he was happy because he's not hurting women anymore because he's being honest about who he is. And I, I guess the overall point is, yeah, be honest about who you are um, and that will help you move forward in the best possible way and will illuminate your path because pretending you know exactly where you are, that's just another way to say you're lost. This week's guest is very special. You know, I, I love doing this podcast. Uh, I hope that comes through in the sound waves. Um, I really enjoy connecting with you, uh, the intimate relationship that I have with you, the I'm honored to be welcomed not only into your life, but like into your ears, into your brain, into the most sacred and private spaces. And um, I really enjoy the fact that having an audience gives me the opportunity to meet people and to invite you along to those first encounters with people. Um, and that's what most of these episodes are. It's someone I really haven't spoken to before or, you know, very briefly. And so you're there with me as I'm getting to know them and, and sort of we're getting to know each other. And that's wonderful. And that's uh, an amazing opportunity that you give me. Um, but then sometimes I have the opportunity to bring you someone I already know and love and uh, and that's a special opportunity because I feel like I don't know I feel like it's an it it gives me a chance to to be generous in a way that I wish I could always be generous with you. Um, but this guy John Colopinto, the guest this week, is one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, I knew of him through his work before I met him in person. Uh, he wrote an article in The New Yorker, which I, I read The New Yorker as consistently as I read anything. It's uh, an amazing source of information. Uh, really high quality writing, high quality thinking, um, 
you know, and each uh, edition is is just so full of fantastic creativity. It's it's um, it's a must have. The New Yorker, anyway. John Pinto is a staff writer on the New Yorker. Before that, he wrote uh, for um, Rolling Stone. He is a fascinating dude, and he wrote an article about the now I, now I Pinaha is how I've been pronouncing it. I feel like that's how it was written out in the article, but it's this um, hunter gatherer group in the Upper Amazon. I've written about them in both of my books. Um, and John went there to do a profile on Daniel Everett, the linguist who was living with them. And uh, I read that article and was just blown away, not only by the information, but the style and the flair and the humor and the grace with which John had written the article. And um, so I kept an eye out for his stuff in The New Yorker, went back and read some things in the archives. And I knew, like, uh, this guy, I'll read anything this guy writes. And then I saw that he had written a book about um, one of the first transgender um, situations a long time ago. It's a tragic case. We talk about it in the podcast Um, his book is called Just As Nature Made Him. It's a story about a little boy, an infant, who, um, through a serious mishap, um, gets his penis cut off while getting circumcised. And the doctors, I guess this was the 70s, early 70s, I think, um, the doctors advised his parents to raise to have the rest of his genitalia removed and to raise this little boy as a girl. And um, because the operating theory was that gender is totally sort of assigned by society and culture. And and so this kid would never know the difference, just grow up thinking she was a girl and she will be a girl. Well, that's not exactly how things played out, as you'll hear in our conversation. But anyway, he wrote that book. Fantastic, amazing, powerful, important book. Um, I read uh, one of his novels. I, I haven't read the one that was banned, which we'll talk about in this in this episode. Uh, and he's just come out with a new book called This is the Voice, which is um, just sort of a comprehensive narrative nonfiction look at what voice is, how it came to be, how it functions in humans as opposed to other animals, how it functions in some societies as opposed to others. Really interesting. Um, He's been, you probably heard uh, interviews with him if you listen to the radio at all. He's been on Fresh Air and uh, there was a review um, that came out in the New York Times just within the last couple of days that uh, really positive review, by the way, written by Mary Roach, who has been on this podcast. Uh, fantastic author. She wrote Bonk and oh, I forget all, all her books have like one word titles. Uh, really interesting writer. So it's good to know that, uh, you know, both friends of the podcast were kind to each other. Anyway, 
John Colopinto, one of my favorite people, and I'm so happy to share him with you. And um, this is a commercial-free episode. You know, I, I've been saying that recently because I want you to... It's so easy to not notice the absence of something, right? Uh, but then when you hear the commercials, you're like, ah, fucking commercials. But you don't notice when there are no commercials. So I just want to mention when there are no commercials, because occasionally there are, right? There are sometimes. Uh, I think the next episode will be sponsored by Lilo. Um, but this particular one, no commercials, not at the beginning, not in the middle. And the only thing at the end is my mom reminding you what's in the garage. So I hope you're doing great out there. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with my great friend, beautiful human John Colopinto. Check him out in the New Yorker, uh, online. You can, he's on Twitter and, uh, I would really recommend looking at some of his work. His profile of Bob Guccione was amazing. If you're old enough to know who Bob Guccione was. Um, and, uh, this is the voice is a really good book. All right. Thanks. I will catch you next time. I was thinking about what would be an appropriate song to play you out with, um, and I decided to play you a song called Say Goodbye by Eva Cassidy, because Eva Cassidy has or had one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard. I remember the first time I heard her <clears throat> singing. I was in a bookstore in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and it was playing in the background. And I just said, who is that? Who? That voice sounds like clear water. There is no sediment. There is there's no, there are no rough edges. There, it's just the perfect voice. Um, and she's a very interesting character. If if you enjoy this and you don't know who I'm talking about, I recommend you uh, do a little digging online. She's a tragic character in some ways. Um, she was absolutely. Um, what's the word? Uh, she did not compromise in order to get commercial success. She was offered record deals, but they wanted her to, to do things that didn't feel right to her in terms of her artistic integrity. And so she turned them down. And, uh, most of what you will hear, if you look around for Eva Cassidy, uh, recordings are recordings that were made when she was singing in Mick Fleetwood's bar in, I think, Baltimore. Um, he recognized how extraordinary she was and he recorded her performances, but she was just playing in this restaurant. And um, and then she died. I think she had leukemia and died under 30. Um, so she's, um, and, and she when she died, no one knew who she was. Uh, and then I think, I think maybe Mick Fleetwood sent a recording to a friend of his who was a DJ in the BBC in England and he played the song and then the BBC was getting inundated phone calls, people saying, who was that, that you played at, you know, 726. And, um, so they put together some of the recordings and they made a, a record or CD and it, you know, blew up the charts in the UK and then they released it in the US. But of course she was gone by now. So um, this is a woman who never lived to uh, to see her own success. But 
uh, she sings from the heart and uh, you can really hear her soul in the voice. So this is Say Goodbye by Eva Cassidy. And uh, thanks for your attention. I'll be back with you soon.
Okay, yeah, that's fine. Uh, but, 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 so we're going to do a one, two, three, and both clap? Yep. Sure. Three, two, one. Oh, I'm sorry. So you you counted down. I wasn't here. I missed. Yeah. This is as bad as us trying to figure out how to <laughs> actually do this. And by the way, you must leave all of this on the actual podcast. But sorry, <laughs> do the countdown again. Sorry. All right. A couple of old fuck ups will be the, the title of this podcast. All right. Three, two, one. All right. Good. That's that gives me a peek to find. All right. So, John Colapinto. Hey, man. Let me tell you the kind of research, exhaustive research that I do. Ooh. About 10 minutes ago when I was having coffee, I looked up John Colapinto online <laughs> and uh, read your Wikipedia page. And, uh, you know, especially with someone like you, where I, I feel like I know you and I've been reading your work for a long time. Uh, it, it's not necessary. But I was trying to find out what Colapinto means. It seems like it would mean something. Oh, man couldn't find it you were asking the greatest question it plagued my family for uh for all the years that we've been here in north america i.e my dad who was born of italian immigrant parents and no right. one ever knew what the name was people said it was a sephardic jewish name they said it was a spanish name because it doesn't make any sense there's no cola c-o-l-a in in yeah. italian it's c-o-l-l-a means i think possibly knack or something anyway my my eldest brother who's a neurosurgeon and super smart also he had ancestry.com to lean on just did this deep dive on our name and it's very very easy and it explains names like uh, colicello the writer and colavita the olive oil that cola c-o-l-a is actually an abbreviation of nicola the name nicola so it's a it's one of those things and linguists actually have a name for it where you take a syllable you clip a syllable off so it's cola nicola and then pinto just means painted and it actually has an implication of being sort of dark hued darkly painted so it's nicola of the dark complexion is really what Mm. the name means i get ferociously dark in summer i mean i'm relatively dark uh in winter you can see um so yeah it's it and it turns out to be indeed fully and completely Italian. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, welcome to the podcast, dude. I'm 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 thrilled and honored that you're doing this because I know you're in the midst of the. I hope you're having a bit of a media frenzy. I saw your I book am. was just reviewed in the New York Times, which must be bringing in more interview requests and uh you got to keep that snowball rolling right yep no absolutely it's been pretty good um covid doesn't help the impeachment is not great for these matters but no i've actually been kept busy like on a daily basis i'm doing something some of it for future broadcast um some live stuff uh it it helped that i published last week a story that got over a billion media views, whatever that means, um, in AARP magazine and 1,250 media mentions um, where we broke the news. I was allowed to break the news that Tony Bennett has Alzheimer's disease. So I ended up writing a 6,000 word feature where I visited him back in November and I was the first journalist he spoke to. And I guess I did a good job of it. Um, I felt like it was a nice story, kind of moving. Um, No thanks to me necessarily, but I watched a man magically and this goes to voice i watched a man magically go from being unable to speak to me um to singing his entire 90 minute set in other words the way that music taps into that part of the brain where not just emotions because people always point to the emotional content of music but all the lyrics came back to him and even the ability to improvise uh in the melody 
So it was absolutely stunning. His regular piano player came over because they do this every day. Well, no, they do it three times a week for therapy. And um, so the, the piece was able to sort of end with this remarkable scene of this man who earlier in the piece we've seen as severely disabled just suddenly come right back to life like Lazarus. So that was a lot of fun. And I was on Good Morning America for that and various other things. So I, I'm getting a nice little double whammy. Right, right, and that really does tie in with the voice. Uh, yeah, he, you know. Yeah, yeah. Did you had you met him before? What gave you access? I great question. I owe this entirely to my old Rolling Stone editor, a guy named Bob Love, who we had done a bunch of stories back in the day. He sort of discovered me in America. I'm from Canada. I came down here. He was the first guy to employ me regularly. And uh, we won a national magazine to award together with this, and which I turned into my first book, this mammoth Rolling Stone story that was 25,000 words long. So Bob and I have this long history. And I'm telling you, it's astounding. He just reached out to me and said, dude, you want to do a story uh, where we've already got the access. So I can take none of the credit for having either known him or known how to get to him. But mm. the family had reached out to him. Danny Bennett, his famously brilliant son, who's been his manager for 40 years and made him into an MTV sensation when he was in his 60s. Danny, you know, reached out to AARP. Um, Danny was kind enough to say to me that it's the best story he's read on his dad ever, which was lovely. Mm. I don't know if he really, no, he seemed to mean it. Um, and it's partly because he and I got together and talked about the Beatles a lot. He's an obsessive as well. But anyway, you know, all of this was really set up by Bob Love and AARP magazine. I just waltzed into like the greatest, most moving story. Yeah, it's That's rare. Great. Yeah, and Tony Bennett's a special character to write about, I imagine, because he had that whole resurgence recently, and he's like the cool old guy, you know? Yes. He's the one carryover. I mean, Sinatra's got, if Sinatra were alive, I imagine he'd have some of that cachet, you know? Right. Um, but Tony Bennett's like, I don't know, of that of that crew, is he the last... He of the is, Mohicans, he's, you know? I, I, he is the last of them. And he did interesting things. Sinatra was, of course, just so famous that he never could be anything but super duper famous. He never really had a dip. Um, mm. Well, perhaps he had a slight dip. But interestingly about, about Sinatra, he never would have done something like go on MTV. In fact, he questioned Tony about it. Like, is that a good idea? And Tony was always sort of ready to do unusual stuff, um, really under Danny's tutelage, I think, his son. Uh, right. Who was super hip about that stuff. But the son was also really wise because MTV was very excited. They went, oh, this is fantastic. So Tony's now going to sing some Red Hot Chili Peppers songs with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And Danny stood up and walked out of the meeting. And they had to go chase him down the hall. They went, what are you doing? And, and, and Danny said, no, like, my father doesn't sing anybody else's songs. They sing with him. They sing ah, duets with him. Nice. So we've had, as you know, like 25 years of duets of Elvis Costello, Katie Lang, Lady Gaga. It doesn't matter how hip the act is. They all sing standards with Tony. Right. I mean, it's just brilliant. And, you know, Tony Bennett, he did one record back in the early 70s when his career was in the dumper. And he sort of sang like, Eleanor 
big B makes up the rice in a church where I'm wedding. I'm doing Sinatra, but I mean, you know, it was just brutal. And worse than that, he actually spoke the lyrics. He spoke the verses. I mean, it was brutal. Eleanor Rigby picks up the Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in a church where a wedding has been. That's my Tony, my suaded whisper. So anyway, Tony realized I'll never do that again. So yeah, that's the, you know we have Danny to thank largely, but but Tony was just a tough bastard in the studio too. He made sure that every one of those duets was a definitive version of the song, and we partly know that because Danny did a documentary of his dad called The Zen of Bennett. And I praised Danny for this because he leaves in parts where Tony looks like he's being a son of a bitch because he's Mm. chewing people out for getting wrong tempos. He's, you know, being... but, But it's never a tantrum. It's never a bullying tantrum. It's always in the service of what Tony says. I want the definitive version of this song. And he cared about that when he was 85. So it was quite a journey into a dude that I really didn't know that much about Tony Bennett, like how artistic, how scrupulous and how dedicated he was all through his life. It's 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 wonderful. Incredible guy. Mm. Yeah, definitely an example of someone who works really hard to make it look easy. Yeah, you You said it. Because his persona is so kind of easygoing and chill and... Yes. uh, Yeah, not that I'm a big Tony Bennett expert. No, me, I I wasn't either, but you've got that totally right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you first came to my attention... When was it? 2008 or something when you wrote that article about yes. the Pinaha? Yeah, it might have been 07 that that was published. I can't even remember which year it was. I think it was was yeah. it 07? I don't even know. Yes, indeed. Can can we talk about that a little Please. bit? Absolutely. I mean, it, Absolutely. I, I know it's not the earliest thing you wrote. You were writing for Rolling Stone for years. Yeah. Uh, so many things I'd love to hear about Bob Guccione. Like, yeah. what was that like? <laughs> that Entering his world? Amazing. Not, not uh, dissimilar to seeing Tony Bennett it, with his Alzheimer's. I was seeing, uh, you know, a very old and diminished Guccione with very bad throat cancer, sort of living uh, in the, this crypt on uh, East 67th Street, a double-wide townhouse with a swimming pool in it. I mean, it was just the most extraordinary thing. And I spent, like, several days with him hanging there. It was Anyway, yeah. To meet Gooch and talk with him about how deliberate all of that was in him and how... I mean, to, to be actually quite serious, like he he understood eroticism in a particular way that was was artistic. He had started as a painter, so this fascinated me. That that and I had even picked that up. I mean, this sounds pretentious, but I mean, at thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, anybody that ends up being a writer is already thinking about art and and artistry, and is thinking about how their world is adapted through representation on a two dimensional surface, like e- even a porn magazine for heaven's sake mm. and i was very aware uh, subconsciously that there was some kind of uh controlling vision in this the way this man was photographing these women which was weirdly respectful this is the thing that's always misunderstood about guccione is that he actually started as someone that painted nude figures and so on and so forth and he and he he genuinely was was respectful of these women uh, it was it, uh, so anyway uh, in all honesty that was a really really interesting dive into to, to, to learn that this was all conscious in him and flowed out of who he was as a person it was amazing he he and um uh the playboy guy oh hefner hugh hefner they, they were kind of two 
opposing visions of male sexuality. Uh, you and I are roughly the same age. Yeah. Uh, and we grew up in that context. Yeah. I, I can remember that was a thing. It was like Beatles or Rolling you know, Stones. The Mets or the Yankees. Yeah, yeah the Beatles <laughs> or the Stones. It was a thing. It was. It was. And how do you think – now, the way you just described that was interesting because you were talking about how um, – is something in Guccione's vision of sexuality, the 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 kind of woman caught in the act, more or less, or like a a still life um, approach to to a painterly approach to eroticism, resonated with something that preexisted within you. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is happening with twelve or thirteen year olds who are growing up? watching porn online what a great question man that's an article right there or possibly a book um god isn't it funny i I guess my immediate thought would be because there is and not that i've ever looked at pornography online but if i had i suspect i would discover that there was a wide variety of approaches um to it and that and that possibly if someone was willing to spend a good part of the day clicking around, they might actually find purveyors of that material who, who take a, a, an approach maybe like Guccione's or, or some other approach that I can't even imagine that suits their fancy, that takes their interest. Um, so, so maybe, I mean, in the best possible scenario, maybe there's a way in which, um, you know, the internet is offering people, uh, such a cornucopia that they can sort of find things that don't warp and horrify them. Um, uh, and so, I mean, maybe that's the, the most positive spin I could put on it. I love how we've strayed <laughs> into this incredibly dangerous territory. The idea that as yeah. males, as, as heterosexual males, we might actually be stimulated by the visual, um, representation of women. I mean, that's actually a not undangerous thing to now be saying. Yeah. And and, and by the way, I can edit out anything that you're uncomfortable sure, with you know. uh, and, and I'm happy to do it. So, you know, just let me know. I'm just going to go out on a tightrope here and say you can run it all. I'm just going to have to try to be really wise and careful. <laughs> well, I recognize that, you know, this podcast is a, a potentially dangerous place for someone like yourself who has a you know, a mainstream public uh, reputation to protect. And, is you know, we just saw what just happened to the science writer in the New York Times yes. who, you know, uh, used a forbidden word oh in God. a way that until recently was acceptable. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Did you read the not to drag you even further into dangerous territory, mm-hmm. but did you read um, uh, uh, Steve, Brett Stevens? He wrote a column about this. I only was, read that he did read one. Or, I'm well, sorry, write did. one. It was it was like sense or it was cut or something or Salzberger apparently. Yeah, wow, stepped cut in. It. Um, but then it was published because it was circulating among people in the New York Times. It was published by the Post, I think. Okay. I have and not read it. I should. It's worth reading. Yeah. It's it's quite good. Yeah. And, you know, he's making the point that you, you we use these words as a reference, right? We say, well, there's, um, you know, I had a guy on the podcast who wrote a book called, uh, well, I don't want to get you in trouble by saying it, but, you know, N-word theory. Oh, wow. Right? Oh, okay. And, and he's a black uh, legal scholar. Yeah. And 
And so, like, what? I, I'm not supposed to use the name. I mean, I remember hearing Terry Gross. Uh, I, I was driving in the car, and it was... Um, I, I love Terry Gross in Fresh Air. Yeah. But the whole time she was interviewing this author, and the name of his book was The Chicken S-Word Gang. Ah. And I'm like, what a weird title, The Chicken S-Word Gang. <laughs> and, and the interview's going on for half an hour, and, you know, at the end of it... It was all about uh, hedge fund managers or something. Yes. And then I realized the name of the book is The Chicken Shit Gang. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the whole time she's calling it The Chicken S-Word Gang. Like, are we in third grade here? What is going... This is ridiculous. Well, I'm all for the word shit being uh, broadcast, you know, liberally and everywhere. And I'm actually happy to see yesterday on the news, amazingly, mind you, it was 24-hour cable, but they were putting the word fuck out out over the air because they were showing in the impeachment trial that the, the, the coup uh, leaders were yelling, you know, fuck this and fucking that. And it was broadcast and not bleeped. And the word in subtitles was shown. Um, I'm all for prohibition of the N-word um, because that's where we've gone in, in life and in the world. I'm, I'm all for it. Um, you know, and I, I think... I mean, even though I, I understand the arguments that, you know, it, it's, quote, just a word or whatever. Well, it's sh- sh- clearly it's more than just a word. Um, and and I guess as a writer, you want to believe that words really can be that explosive. I mean, to me, that's not a that's not a problem. You know, it reminds me of how Justice Scalia surprised everyone when there was all this debate over burning flags where he said, well, of course, flags should be allowed to be burnt. Because they're such potent symbols. He said, if our flag isn't a potent symbol of the freedoms and what this country is, then, you know, burning it wouldn't mean it. People are burning it because it's so potent. It was just a fabulous twist around argument. Mm. And I would I would say the same of of, of certain words, certainly racially, um, you know, charged ones, um, you know, and, and misogynistic talk. I mean, which makes me want to do some repair work if possible although i i I say that in the spirit of of sort of joking facetiousness but where we now stand with with the pornography question is that women girls and women are now and they've been doing this but this only fans phenomenon which i've Mm -hmm. just been learning about is something if i understand it correctly and i hope i'm not making a fool of myself here i'm sure people will let me know but if i understand correctly it permits women who you know to make their own money without a third party or you know whatever and to control the the means of production and the means of broadcast um, so that they can make that decision for themselves. And it puts a lot of the power into their hands. I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, it's because men are such pathetic losers. I'm just going to move my mic slightly because men are such pathetic losers. And we are so susceptible to the visual in this, in this way, um, you know, good on women for being able to sort of take the bull by the horns. And, you know, if there's money to be made from it, you know, maybe, maybe, Maybe it's fine. You know, let them. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it is a little scary in how it can. I would hate to think that it's causing young women to sort of be motivated to do something they otherwise wouldn't do and that they're going to deeply regret. So, I mean, there's layers to all of this. Um, yeah. And they're amazing layers. We're in an amazing world now. I mean, I, I understand very little of it at this point. Yeah, it's always struck me as interesting how. Uh, how 
when sex is involved, uh, people get up in arms about the exploitation of women, um, but they're totally comfortable with exploiting those same women even more at a lower price, let's say. In other words, uh, women who choose to have sex for money in Cambodia are considered to be victims of trafficking and so on, whereas women who work at the Nike plant for a tenth of that money are just part of capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like a weird thing. And, and, and by saying that, I, I don't mean to imply that no women are victimized by that. But in a way, everyone is victimized by capitalism. And it's only when sex is involved that it becomes a problem, yes. which then leads you to think, or leads me to think anyway, that, you know, in the guise of protecting women, there's an awful lot of... Um, energy going into stopping women from taking control of their own sexuality and actually you know letting them make the money from it as you were saying with yeah only fans yeah i mean i think ultimately these uh, where i've ended up in this whole situation that we're in whereby people can get in a lot of trouble for saying the wrong thing is to instead of thinking that that's such a terrible thing I've come to recognize that yes what what I what I really want to hear is not two white middle-aged guys talking about women and and their and their relationship to pornography or prostitute I want to hear women talk about it and I want to, I want them to tell me how to think about it and I want them to tell me how to talk about it um, I never knew I would be there and I want African Americans to tell me what what words they want me to use and what attitudes they want me to have I've come around to seeing that that's all good that that's the way we're going to grow and I and I that specifically applies to this current book of mine because I do have to wade into waters that were surprisingly fraught particularly with the black voice and black English and I realized in doing it, I just said, well, I mean, clearly the way to do this in a way that's not offensive to black people or anyone else is to listen to what black scholars, black thinkers, black people have had to say about attitudes to black English. And the minute I did that, it was such a great exercise in just like stepping off and not being like, anytime you write a book, you're the authority. That's where the word author comes from. Mm. At the same time as I had to be some sort of supposed authority, the only way to get there was by an intense act of empathetic listening. And, oh boy, that was a great exercise. Like it's, it, it would just, I mean, I think my attitudes on race were, were pretty good, pretty fine for a Canadian who grew up with not amongst African-Americans, let's say. Um, I came here at the age of 30 um, and, and was playing sort of catch up in a funny way. Um, but in any case, I, I just felt like I learned so much, you know, at this late stage of the game, just by an act of real listening, research, scholarship. And the same would apply really for women. I haven't so much done that exercise really uh, because I haven't had to because of my writing, but, um, but I should. And, and I'm, I'm now open. I just want to hear what women have to say about all of this. Well, I have, um, Uh, two friends of mine, two uh, young women in their early 30s, do a podcast called Horror Rapport. Hmm. 
uh, rapport as in between two people, right? Nice. And uh, and they're they're undertaking exactly the, the the sort of mission that you're talking about. They're saying, okay, what if two sexually empowered, uh, unafraid, unashamed women get together and talk about different aspects of sexuality and relationships and let the world listen in, basically, mm-hmm. is what they do. Yes. Um, so if they ever start having guests, I'll recommend you as a... <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> get you in trouble with those two. But but your work, I, I mean, I know we're still skirting around this, the danger zone here, but a lot of your work, looking back on you know reading your Wikipedia page this morning, a lot of your work has been in... You know, in that sort of no man's land uh, where you could, I mean, your first book about um, transgender, uh, yes. just as it was called, just as, as nature God made him. Made. Yeah, as, as nature, nature made, made him. him. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that book? Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, it's a book about a famous medical case, uh, now notorious from the mid 60s, of a, ba- of a baby boy who lost his penis while being uh, circumcised and was the first infant sex change. So he was a developmentally normal boy, i.e., not hermaphroditic or intersexed, and born with unambiguous genitalia, who, yes, loses his penis, is you know, turned into a girl by social conditioning. She's renamed Brenda, dressed in a dress by her mom, given girls toys to play with. All of this on the recommendation of a Johns Hopkins, the gender guru of the time, John Money, who yeah, right. um, and, um, and and this was well intentioned, right? This was according to the 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 understanding of the time. Gender was totally socially conditioned, totally learned, had nothing to do with DNA or. Innate. Well, I want you know one wants to say that, and John Money said that in his own defense later. But actually, the animal studies, very very compelling research, was coming mm-hmm. out of laboratories showing the sort of hardwired nature of of sexuality. Now, granted, they were animal studies, but our understanding of gender as fluid back in the '60s, people never point this out, was actually from John Money's earlier work with intersexed people with with her what we used to call hermaphrodites and so our you know john money was in at the birth of this idea that it was that it was malleable at birth and the reason he thought that that was so is because he discovered in his work pioneering work with intersexes that they could live in either role they seem to be comfortable moving back and forth um mm. i mean later it's been later suggested that whatever made their uh their genitalia ambiguous also made their brain centers for sex ambiguous. Ah, they, their nervous systems were made ambiguous. So of course they could go back and forth, but he didn't think of that. He just said, Oh no, like he said, intersexes are like developmentally normal people. Um, you know, and so he generalized from this, this rather rare set of individuals to, to say that the entire species was this way, which was problematic. Now, also, again, there were these uh, remarkable and now seminal, no pun intended, experiments uh, out of these rat labs and so on, showing, and John Money should have been aware of this and was when he recommended, he'd already seen these studies, when he recommended to this poor mother that was absolutely distraught 
over her child's loss of the penis, he said, well, you got to get the child quickly down here, they were Canadians, to Johns Hopkins, we've got to start this sex change. Now, the, and if you want to put uh, an uncharitable spin on money's actions, you would also point out that money was already being challenged in his theory of sexual uh, you know, malleability at birth. And he'd even been told by a rival scientist, until you show us a developmentally normal boy, until you show, it was literally, he said this in this cold, hard words, until you show us a developmentally normal boy that is successfully turned into a girl, we can never believe your, your theory. Well, here was the developmentally normal boy. Now the punchline. He was born an identical twin. There was a control child. There was a, a genetic right. clone. There was literally someone with his precise uh, DNA. So this was the experiment of all experiments. So raise one as a boy, raise the other as a girl, and let's see what happens. And Money published it as a big success. He gave these updates over the first 10 years of the kid's life. And then he disappeared. I mean, he disappeared from the literature. Money no longer would speak about him. He would say at conferences, no, I can't talk about that because uh, of, you know, the patient-client confidentiality and so on. Mm. And the rival scientist I mentioned earlier, it's such an incredible story. Uh, decided he had to find the kid. So it, when the when the kid was now 33 years old, uh, Doctor Diamond, who was the rival to Doctor Money, if you can believe these names, <laughs> he found him. He found him, and wow. and I say him because David, or formerly Brenda, had been living as David since the age of 15. When as a suicidal girl who didn't understand why she had these unusual feelings, um, was finally told on threat of of killing herself a very wise psychiatrist up in winnipeg where this all took place said you've got to tell her and she did and it was assumed that brenda would probably take a few years to transition and they would have to move away from their home because i mean you know in in uh whatever year this was, 1980-something, um, you know, who'd ever heard of a, a kid changing sex, you know, in, in full view of the community? Well, no, David did it within a week. He said, I, I can't, I'm not living like this. He renamed himself um, and started the transition, right? And they didn't move. They didn't, they, and uh, remarkably, and so then he, he had great strength of character, ended up marrying a woman despite no penis. He was clinically castrated at Johns Hopkins as a baby. Don't forget, he just lost his penis, not his testicles. But John Money said for him to fully absorb the female identity, we've got to get those testicles off. So his reproductive capacity was removed uh, when he was under two years old on the say-so of a guy some guys were they using uh, additional hormones and they, they started him with the hormones at puberty yes he was oh, given right. uh, and he started to grow breasts those had to be removed with a double mastectomy uh, i mean it is it's physical mental psychological and emotional torture such as i've never ever heard of um and the long sort of horrible ending to the story is that i wrote a rolling stone story about it and I wrote, I uh, expanded it into a book. It's currently being developed by Peter Jackson of, of Hobbit and Lord of the Rings fame for a movie. We were scouting locations in Winnipeg uh, a while back. And um, they've been through several drafts of the script. But um, long story short, David, uh, four years after my book's publication in the year 2000, uh, shot himself in the head. He had been suicidal for as long as I knew him. He'd been suicidal since he was a child, and it finally got him. His twin brother had died the year before of an alcohol and drug overdose. I guess what I'm saying is the kinds of scarring 
mental and emotional that this type of upbringing uh, puts on a person is not remedied by like a best-selling book and going on Good Morning America as he did do. Um, I shared profits with him 50-50 on the movie deal, on the book deal. Um, you know, he's a blue-collar worker. He had never had any money. Now he had money. Um, but that doesn't save your ass. You know, it just doesn't. Torture is torture. Um, so it, there was yeah. that bright and happy story that I did. It's an amazing story, and, and it's, it's very much relevant. How do you feel about the debate happening now uh, around children who decide that they are transgender and adults who enable them to begin hormonal treatments or, or surgical treatments at 11, 12, 13 years of age. Where, where your take on that must be very nuanced. Yeah, well, to my earlier point about now listening to the, the people under discussion, whether they be African-Americans and we're talking about their, you know, linguistic uh, uh, African-American vernacular or whether or not we're talking about women and their attitudes to pornography. I did a lot of listening to intersexed people and to people with gender dysphoria, as I think they used to call it. I'm not sure if they still do. Kids that were, you know, quote, developmentally normal, but were trans in their in their thinking um so back when i did the book i expanded it beyond david's personal story to talk precisely about this issue 20 years ahead of where we are now so i had an earlier glimpse at it all but i also had the testimony of david who knew from the age of two or three that something was desperately wrong so i take it with full i mean i just absolutely uh, listen to these young people that say, I am a girl. And you can say that at the age of five, and you can say it at six. You probably can say it at three. I think they do say it at three. And you can take it to the bank. Um, you know, and, and I think the earlier it's said, you know, possibly the, the, the more you should believe it. But I think if a 15-year-old up and says it, uh, you better listen real close. Um, because it's torture to live in the wrong gender identity and um and i mean tortures mental torture and it's a kind of physical torture because every time you look at your genitalia you're seeing something that shouldn't be there and that that is deeply shocking to your to your mind um I mean, I know that there's this argument that exists that, you know, it's become trendy and that, you know, kids that are 13 are just going to decide that they want to be like the other one. I mean, you know, I did. I, you know, I wrote about David doing this transition, you know, amongst people that knew him. I knew I know about well, I feel I know about it in as much as any journalist could know anything. But like, I, I think I had a really good window into what it means to really make that that choice and that decision um so my feeling is more more power to him um i know it shocks the living hell out of people uh to get over it is my feeling to tough tough mm. bananas yeah i'm i'm yeah. i'm there I, I i wonder how well did you know david's twin did you really well maybe almost better david because of what had been done to him he had been made into almost like a wolf boy he had been uh bullied ostracized as a child he did not socialize properly for that reason his and so he was not uh, a nuanced speaker and and about although very very accurate in his memories that was amazing but he had a gruff kind of affect and, and way of talking and he sort of spunk spoke in these blunt 
almost like battering ram-like sentences because his whole life had been a battle. He was embattled. His brother, however, was sensitive and nuanced because he was the, the child that was overlooked. He was the child that was totally unimportant in the eyes of science. And I, would, I don't want to say he was unimportant to his parents, but his parents had a forest, you know, they had a fire going in the living room. They couldn't right. attend to the kid that was, you know, playing with matches. So, um, yeah, his brother Brian was just a, an amazingly sensitive and smart guy and so i got to know him really well because i i had to interview him like crazy um yeah yeah and it was tragic what happened to him brutal yeah it's i have very good friends who are twins and um the intimacy between twins is is astounding uh and so i'm imagining from his from brian's perspective watching all of this happen He's almost like, I don't know, like watching a mirror or a murder take place in a mirror. You know, there's this weird, like, it's it's me, but not me. It's happening to him, but also to me. Uh, You know, there's an amazing connection. Yes. And then you add the layers of sibling rivalry and jealousy over David getting all the attention. You know, from parents and 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 the medical community and so on, because that was enfolded. Everything was conflicted, um, so that was extremely tight. And then I roll in there as the journalist, and I'm going to be writing David's story. And I had to let Brian know. And Brian was very upset. Brian was a drinker because he was miserable and he was self medicating. And he came to my hotel room, and he said um, he wanted to beat me up. He was a blue collar guy too, strong really strong guy and he thought I was tearing their family apart because I had introduced this whole situation where you know it was it was big I mean you know Peter Jackson was interested at that stage you know they knew about those Lord of the Rings movies they knew there was money floating around and, and a fair amount of it and David had agreed to pay money to uh, Brian he was going to take care of Brian's share and suddenly David didn't want to because they were having a fight they, were, they would have these fights, and, D- and David would use the money as leverage against Brian. So Brian was being left out in the cold financially, too. So this was tearing them apart, and the parents were getting involved. And that's why Brian appeared on my doorstep in my hotel room. I already knew these guys from doing the Rolling Stone story, so it's not like I didn't know him. He knew I would treat the story respectfully. I think he knew I wasn't a scumbag. And, um, but he was tanked up on, on beer. And he was super duper upset and it was upsetting. I let him into my room and he was a big drunken factory worker, dude, uh, very muscled and very mad. Um, I was a journalist, a pencil necked geek who, uh, felt nothing but sympathy for him. And I talked him down, talked him off the ledge and talked to David about holding true to his promise to give him the money. And that worked. Thank God. But in the aftermath of, of Brian finally leaving my hotel room, I phoned my agent. I said, I don't know if and we, this was a big book deal and a big movie deal. And I phoned her and said, and this is when you know you have a good agent. I said, ah, something so upsetting has just happened. And she said, you know, John, life's too short. You can walk away from this. So she was willing to give up her 15% and say, you know, as a writer, you got You got to be doing what you got to be where you want to be. You can't be somewhere where you're miserable and unhappy. And then luckily, I all ironed out and smoothed out. But it was a, you don't, what am I trying to say? You don't step into a world like this, of this kind of torture, 
and unhappiness and expect that it's going to be like an Oprah show. Is right. Life isn't like that. You, you are in the maelstrom. You are in something so dysfunctional, so broken, and so, frankly, so scary and depressing uh, that, uh, it, I mean, it took a lot out of me, I will say. I, I was not sorry when that was all over, but I do think I ended up with a pretty remarkable document. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing snapshot of a moment in history and, and the convergence of culture and science and yeah. Yeah, family dynamic and I mean, so much going on there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, this I, I don't know if this is true, actually, but I, I remember reading that Hemingway's mother dr- dressed him as a girl treated him as a girl when he was growing up and that this was not uncommon i think marie rainier rilke was also raised as a girl yes what's up with that do you i mean did that enter into your research at all well i will say uh, john wayne was another one i think john wayne was fascinating well i have so you think of it photographs of my grandfather john wayne yeah i have photographs of my grandfather this is on the wasp side of my family my dad's side was the italian side my mom's side was the waspy side last name of coleman and they were sort of a and in the instance of everybody you've mentioned they were all sort of well-off waspy families and so i Mm. suspect it was part of that culture because i have pictures of my grandfather charles lester coleman the third um in a little dress as a little boy i mean well what looks like a nighty like and with kind of girlish hair so it right. seems to have been a thing but i will say this oh and of course there was all these theories that that hemingway was kind of ambiguous in his um sexuality more so than his macho exterior would mm. suggest and he wrote a late book that was published after his death called the garden of eden which i recommend to any listener i just read it reread it recently and it was better than i remembered and my god it's incredible I mean, it is so profoundly extraordinary. In fact, why is it not talked about in this time of transgenderism? The Hemingway character falls in love with the with the woman that is really autobiographically his second wife. Pfeiffer is her last name. But in the story, they, they switch sex in bed. She becomes the man and treats him as the girl. And they, they talk about him becoming the woman. And it's all about this giving up of the macho-ness in the, and her taking it on and the, and the fluidity of sexual identity, uh, power dynamics, domination and submission. And it is amazing. She cuts his hair like a, or she cuts her hair like a guy and and Pfeiffer I'm not saying her name right I'm forgetting her name uh, actually had a haircut like that so it's been speculated this really was going on and I think it was mm. now I'm such an old whore as a journalist that uh, you can mention any subject and I'll say well I did a story on that so they had <laughs> that's why we love you John there you go man you know I've been around the block uh, they had a, a son named Gregory and Gregory did a sex change, became, was, was a transsexual. And Gregory famously changed sex late in life. And he died in 2001, I believe it was. Um, and he had actually been arrested in Miami in full women's regalia on a street corner, drunk and so on. And he was a bit of a mess emotionally for all sorts of reasons, but this among them. And he had actually undergone the beginnings of real sex change operation. And I wrote the feature story on it for Rolling Stone magazine. And nobody noticed it because the 9-11 attacks happened right then. But I published this rather blisteringly interesting I think story about poor Gregory I went and followed his footsteps and f- spoke to his children and his uh, nephew 
and I was given um, a bunch of photocopies of private letters between Ernest and Gregory when Gregory was growing up. And I mean, I mean, I, I would, I actually, whenever I talk about this story, I always think, yeah, that's kind of my lost story in a weird way, mm. because at any other time, I have a feeling that would have made a, a bit of a splash. But I was assigned, you know, it, yeah, because I had done the As Nature Made Him book, yeah. Right. It would be interesting to, I wonder if there's a way to do this, to, to like put together an anthology of great books or, or stories or, 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 or journalism that came out at the moment of some historical distraction what a great idea things that were lost right I like the stuff that was published the week of 9 11 oh, that nobody idea. ever saw what a great idea that's amazing or like man. i mean i think of uh who was it was it um huxley or orwell who died like the day kennedy was shot and Ooh, so nobody oh i didn't one know of, that yeah one of yeah. them it's yeah, yeah, interesting yeah. like that whole distraction i love it what a great idea yeah did you did you ever meet jan morris Never did, never did. But she, she wrote a very, very funny profile of my hometown of Toronto. She was a travel writer, obviously. Yeah. And she yeah. worked for the magazine that I first started writing for up in Canada called Saturday Night Magazine, which was the answer to the New Yorker and the Atlantic up in Canada. And I remember just getting, hearing stories of what it was like to work with Jan and how smart she was from my editor who edited that piece. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, and I was very, you know, I mean, relatively, I was 25, but I remember thinking I'm going to meet her in the office one day and never did. She proceeded to write a story about Toronto, which has never been equaled. It was the funniest goddamn story I've ever read. And, and talk about honest in writing. So here's the point. She was writing for a Canadian magazine that was situated in Toronto for a largely Toronto audience. She pulled no punches. She basically said what is true of Toronto and she described it as now there was a, a, the lottery up there was called Lotario because it's in the in the province of Ontario. That gives you an idea of how lame Canada really is. And this I'm not afraid of being like canceled for. Anyway, <laughs> so it was Canadians called, don't cancel. <laughs> that's true too, but it was called Lotario. That's what the big lottery was called. And uh. Jan Morris ended her story about Toronto, saying Toronto is is safe and clean, like everybody says. But living here, you cannot escape the feeling that you. You've got second place in the Lotario of life. <laughs> second place in the Lotario of life. Oh, my God. Oh, That's rough. So yeah. great. What a genius. Well, for listeners who, who aren't familiar with Jan Morris, the reason and are wondering, like, why the hell did he mention <laughs> right. Jan Morris? Jan Morris was born. James Morris uh, was a... Uh, uh, decorated veteran of uh, I don't know if it was World War II or yeah um, uh, but she before becoming Jan Morris was a very uh, well-known journalist uh, in fact was the journalist who first reported that Sir Edmund Hillary had yes. summited um, right. Mount Everest because James was at base camp wow. um, yes so like a macho dude yeah. in other words yeah and then was one of the first people to undergo a sex change procedure and wrote a beautiful book about it called Conundrum. Yes, indeed. Indeed. It's a, it's a really beautiful, it slim is. book. But and, and she was, you know, she was so classy. I, I did meet her uh, very briefly at a reading oh, in cool. New York in the 80s when I was there. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, 
you know, and I read all her work because I was traveling. I was really interested in travel literature, and and uh, she was the best, you know. Uh, and who has traveled further? You yeah. know, yeah. you know, yeah. it's it's like the story of Tiresias, the the mythical Greek figure who had been a man and a woman. You know, yes, right, story. absolutely, yes, yeah, yeah. So, like having that that sort of dual perspective is so. Uh, and wisening, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but let's let's talk about voice. We we sure. we've wandered yeah. off. The, you know, the name of this podcast is tangentially speaking. So, oh great, now yes. you know why, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, this is my dream interview. Just I, this is what I love doing. I just have someone really interesting on and just let it go wherever the fuck it goes. You uh, know. Well, I have to say, you have a talent for it because you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> for confusion and chaos. No, no, because there is I, you, you somehow have the reins on this. But you're letting it breathe and go in interesting directions. But you, you well, wisely you. are are also sort of bringing it back. Anyway, I, I think it's fantastic. What a great way well, to do it. I mean, if we had six hours, we might be able to, oh, to exhaust ourselves. No, you're, you're terrifying because you're one of those few people. I mean, you seem to know about everything. I mean, my God. Uh, I mean, well, we're both old whores, John. Well, I, you know, <laughs> that's the thing, right? There We've is both that. been around the block. That's true. And and I was I'm struck by. You know, one of the themes running through your work is eroticism and sexuality. I, I was looking in the archives of stuff you've written in The New Yorker. I see a lot of Nabokov in there. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and, and also, what, what was the name of the book that got rejected by 40 publishers? That was my novel, Undone, originally right. called An Upright Man, which is a quote from uh, the Bible, actually, Book of Job. He was described as an upright man. But I liked the pun on an upright uh, penis, really, an upright man, uh, because it was addressing male desire. And I wrote it. I mean, I don't know if you want, I'll, in a nutshell, I will just say that I was anticipating a lot of where we have now ended up. And this was about 2012 that I started thinking about writing it and even before. But I was very aware that the sort of leading novelists of the day, Franz and David Foster Wallace, Michael Chabon even, they were not writing uh, sort of about sex, the way Roth, Mailer, Updike had. Mm. They were not sort right. of romping around and displaying their desire and so on and so forth. And Wallace had famously written a review, a demolishing review of Updike's book till the end of time or toward the end of time, where he called Updike like a, a fallocrat and, and it lumped him in with these guys that were dinosaurs of, of parading sexuality and so on, obsessed with their own erections. And I, I thought he was not wrong. I thought it was very amusing and funny. I thought it was a little harsh. What I did notice was that it really had an impact, that all of a sudden guys weren't writing about this. I understood why they weren't. But also there's something perverse in me. If I know there's a censure, if I know there is, if I know that I'm in church and I have to be quiet, I'm going to mm. burp or fart. I'm going to do it or swear. But, I mean, it's partly a self-destructive impulse. It's, a, it's, I don't know what it, or it's a rebellious. I don't know what it is, but I thought, oh, gee, there's got to be a way to revive this or, or, or just to, to dip my toe in or what would happen if I wrote such a book? Like, could it get published? And I, so I conceived of what I thought of as like being the most odious sexual situation imaginable, which was a father daughter incest. Uh, 
And I mentioned it to my agent and she said, too icky. It's just too gross. No. And I said, you're right. It's way too gross. And, and it, it revolted me. And it's not something you can make into, uh, I don't want to even say entertainment. I want to say, well, let's say if you try to make it into illuminating literature, it better be in, in a very, very serious mode, a modality, you know, of, of tone. I wanted to write something that was um, provocative, funny, darkly funny, black comedy. Um, I wanted to approach, I mean, Lolita was a huge influence in that I thought Nabokov had done this incredibly risky but courageous and dangerous thing and had in effect gotten away with it. Whether he still has, I don't know. Uh, it, whether he still is, is another question. But I wanted something in that dark realm of comedy. So I suddenly realized, what if it's not his daughter, but he thinks it is? What if he's being tricked into thinking that this very attractive 18-year-old, 17-year-old she was at the beginning of the book, is his daughter? I had originally going to make her 15, and again, my editor actually said, let's ease her up to 17. I said, yep, correct, absolutely right. Because the point wasn't to outrage over, over age. First of all, Nabokov had done it. Um, it was more this idea of, yeah, so forbidden desire. How do you write about that in this day and age? Everything's been written about. So the idea was that he has a nemesis who is a is, is himself an ephibophile, which is sort of like a pedophile, but they're they're only interested in teenagers, and they exist. It's an actual category category of sex, and um, so my ephibophile is determined to bring down this good and decent man that he sees on TV. And uh, the, the good and decent man on TV is publicizing a memoir about being married to a woman that's a complete paralyzed quadriplegic that can only blink yes and no. So they don't have sex. So he's someone that is, but he's uxorious, he's, he, he's uh, faithful. So he's frustrated. And so our bad guy, our nemesis, who has given in to every imaginable dark sexual impulse by sleeping only with underage teenagers, sees this paragon of virtue on the television. And, and my feeling was that I was writing about something that I think is real in humanity that doesn't have anything to do with sex. It has to do with envy, human envy. And the thing is, if we, if we look at someone that seems, you know, beyond reproach, if we have a particular twisted emotion, emotional life, we want to bring them down to our level. We want to suck them down. So he takes his current girlfriend, who for reasons I won't go into, could plausibly be made to be, seem like this man's daughter, and contacts him and says, you have a long lost daughter. And she's introduced into the home. The book then becomes this, this kind of, I wanted to look at a good and decent man. I did not want some romping sex fiend some goatish guy. I wanted someone who really was controlled and wanted to be good. I wanted to put him under the worst imaginable seductive pressure. And furthermore, so he's, he's Job. He's Job. Correct. He's being tempted by the devil. Thank right. you for knowing right. that. Exactly. And unfortunately, the title was changed. So that kind of, that's a precisely it. So we put him under a test, which is what was done to Job. Um, and and I, I loved the book, to be honest. I, I knew it was a little dangerous, but I knew it wasn't really her daughter, his daughter. And I got a lot of publishers immediately writing back to my agent saying, I couldn't put this down. I read it over the weekend and we'll get back to you on Monday with a deal. 
And we had a number of versions of that. And then when Monday rolled around, it was like, okay, well, listen, we showed it to the higher ups. And they said, not at this time. Um, Yeah. And I mean, perhaps. When was this? This actually, yeah, the rejections all were flowing in in 2014. They were pouring in. And I had actually spent a good five years on the book. I mean, part time, but I had worked hard on it. Um, And it's always disappointing. But in a way, I asked for it. I I wanted to test the waters. I wanted to see what would happen. And precisely what I thought would happen, happened. Um, And and in a way, it's fine. I mean, now I've actually come to recognize that it's a damn good thing that the book didn't penetrate because I would now be being canceled for having written an intolerable book. I kid. I think anyone that reads the book We'll, we'll actually see that it's not cancel worthy. But I did have a bad moment on Twitter, actually, when the book first came out. The New York Times did wonderfully write a half-page little profile of me saying, Colabinto tries to revive the sex novel. And there was a tweet storm. I had recently signed on to Twitter. Someone said to me, listen, man, you, the only way to promote this book is to go on Twitter. So I had a new Twitter account. And I saw, like, young women, largely, but also some virtue-signaling men saying, look at this asshole that's, trying, that's saying it's good to sleep with your daughter. Like they were getting it all wrong. But anyway, because I hadn't yeah. read the book, right? And they were piling on, and I was sitting there and being new to Twitter, and everyone yeah. was semi-new to Twitter in 2015 or whatever this was. I was like, what is happening? And I was restraining myself from responding. But here's where it got scary. You know, my wife went to bed and I was sitting there up with the fucking computer, you know. And at about two in the morning, someone tweeted. I guess it was a young woman, although I'm, I'm old and my eyes are not good and I couldn't see from the icon what she looked like or how old she was. But she said something like, oh, this is so gross and disgusting. And I tweeted and said, you know, really, if, if I would love it if you would actually look at the book. And I included a link for the book on Amazon. My God, all of a sudden someone said this is the equivalent of sending a dick pic. It was a guy tweeted this and then someone else jumped in and went yeah look at what he's doing and they said attractive young woman middle-aged guy and so i clicked i, I went i looked I, went, what? I clicked on her avatar and it got bigger and she was a youngish woman probably in her 20s i'm an old crotchety guy i'm like oh my god where is this going like and it was my first experience of seeing something spin out of control and it got worse and worse and like people piled on and and what I did to staunch it was to say, was to totally apologize and take it back and say, wow, I see what I've done wrong. And, and, and by sort of repeatedly tweeting, oh, I get it. You know, you, I see, you know, I didn't mean, and by being abject in my apologies, I managed to stomp it down. But I was very worried that by nine in the morning, this would be like a million tweets that had gone around the world. I mean, it was truly, truly scary to see, you know, my misstep in saying, in, in thinking that I was saying the rational thing, which was, you know, you might actually like it if you look at this book. But no, there was no doing that, perhaps, in this day and age, you know. And maybe I've learned my lesson. Maybe that's just the way it is. And maybe the thing to do is not write that book in the first place. I just don't know. Is the book available now? It is. It's gettable on Amazon. And and I'm happy to see, you know, of course, I'm like any writer. I pretend I don't go on Goodreads practically every day to see if anyone's reading my books <laughs> and reviewing them. But, of course, I'm on there hourly. No, I mean, I, I do notice that this many years later, you know, it does. It, the, the reviews trickle in every now and again. And it gets the odd five-star review, which is which is quite gratifying. And it gets them. It gets it actually from women largely, which is quite wonderful. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's a strange time. I, I, one of the reasons that I do this podcast is that um, it's not subject to censure, right? It's just me and the audience. Yeah. And, you know, the audience, it's supported by the audience. Uh, occasionally, I, I do some advertising mm -hmm. for sex toys is my main, my <laughs> high-end high sex toys, Lilo. Wow. Thank you, Lilo. Wow. Um, but that's about it as far as advertising goes. Uh, and, and this, people send money. They, they just, Fantastic. you know, say, hey, here's 20 bucks, here's 50 bucks, here's five bucks a month, whatever. Wow. Um, and... I think that it's kind of like an island in a rising sea of nonsense that, you know, I can speak directly with people. I can use any word I want. I, I refrain from using certain words uh, with you just because I don't want you to be associated <laughs> with, with a problem. But I started uh, an episode, I don't know, a couple of years ago just by saying every expletive I could think of, every forbidden word. Yes. I said, you know, welcome to the podcast, you kikes and Jews. And, you know, and, and I just went through and said everything I could think of just to demonstrate that these are just words, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, and I, I fully um, subscribe to the idea that intention is all that matters. Mm. And and I do not accept anyone policing what words I'm used I'm allowed to use and not allowed to use. Although I guess you I have to be a little bit of a psychologist here and say that, you know, you would have fully felt your, what your intentions were in starting the broadcast that way, that you yeah. were you were intending to diffuse these words or show that they are just words. Exactly. And, yeah. and I will I will believe that of you, but I will also believe that there could be people that have podcasts that actually have an unexamined set of prejudices, have an unexamined, unrealized desire to say brutally insulting words that they that actually will wound and hurt people to hear and they so they have an unexamined uh, aggression um so you know uh, I, I think that's not impossible so the whole intention question while i want to agree with it wholeheartedly and largely do i'm afraid i'm aware that there's just so much complexity in humans that i don't know if we know what our intentions are i mean why the yeah. hell did i write that book that was going to potentially you know be five years of work down the toilet when i knew damn well it would get uh, in effect canceled by the publishers i mean you know we do crazy shit we don't know why we're doing it uh so i guess my feeling is <laughs> that's true i gotta say but is that but is that a reason want, not yeah. to do it well good question you know, i you don't know, what know. I mean? I'm, and i'm not because yeah. how else do we learn uh, yeah. you know what did you learn about yourself in writing that book okay. whoa what the hell did i learn well okay what i learned was the following i intended it to be this provocative story that w w would actually push people's buttons it would sort of adopt a kind of swaggering maleness that it would be sort of uh updikean or nabokovian and it's kind of you know male pushing that male thing forward what i discovered was that i had actually set up a situation i had actually worked my way around already in in the setup to to have it be exactly the opposite i had a, a very loving uh, uh faithful lead character my male 
protagonist who is totally devoted to this crippled wife. This uh, crippled is the wrong word. We're not allowed to use that. To this disabled wife, and who had made his peace with not having sex anymore. And I had him resisting this with with the. So it was really a book that, to my own surprise, it was a book that was kind of endorsing David Foster Wallace's in effect prohibition against men doing this big oh i'm a big sex guy and you know i've got this constant erection and isn't it great i'm such a macho guy it was really about a sort of a querulous loving uh you know faithful guy that fights every fights tooth and nail to not succumb and in fact who's who's sort of you know and actually the teasing the scenes of teasing that i imagined i would write you know and that would be such a sort of provocative thing those were almost all happen off stage they're sort of described after the fact they're not mm. highlighted and what i imagine would be this descent into this long sexual affair with his quote unquote daughter ended up not happening i realized one instance was enough he succumbs once and it's not described except the lead up to it is and then we cut away so what I discovered about myself was I wanted to be an outrageous provocateur and and couldn't be I am a man of my times to my own surprise I'm a lover of Updike's writing I'm a lover of Nabokov's writing but I mean for instance I was at there's a book that's about to come out called um uh, Lolita in the Afterlife. And it's actually an anthology by Walter Minton's daughter. Walter Minton is the guy at Putnam's that published Lolita in America for the first time. He took the risk. He's the reason we know about Nabokov here in America. So Walter Minton's daughter is doing an anthology. She's asked Roxanne Gay and a whole bunch of heavy hitters to write essays about it. I was asked to write about Lolita. I wrote two drafts. One of them, a draft that was all about my inability to face that book now, my apology for having liked it, my feeling that now it was very, very hard to defend. And she was like, you know, I've got a few of those, John. Can you write me another version? I was like, actually, because I'm so much of two minds about this book, I'd love to explore the other side. What can I say now that is positive about that? What, what can I step out with? And I wrote that draft, and it was equally unconvincing. And to my, and I have, I, to, I mean, I'm just going to boast now that I've never had a story killed in 30 years. She said, you know, I think it's not for the book. And I, Almost daily, I fall on my knees and say, oh, thank God. So I know this book is coming out, and I'm not going to be in it, and I don't want to be. I don't want to take a firm, permanent, in-print stand on a book that, for me now, is just so much in flux. And I've defended it my whole—I wrote my master's thesis on Nabokov. Mm. Um, I don't know what to say about Lolita now. I don't know what anyone can say. I've always been deeply suspicious of Nabokov's claim that this was all very at arm's length and he has no interest in young women or girls. I have no idea what, what about the veracity of that now. Some of his greatest champions, like Martin Amos, are feeling the same way. Um, you know, what did I discover when I wrote Undone? I guess I discovered all of this in me. It was almost a journey into, 
yeah, I guess I wanted. I mean, why does anyone write a novel? I wanted to know how do I actually feel about yeah. sex and desire and my own sex and desire. That's why I ask, because I've never written a novel, but I imagine it being this sort of, you know, I really envy musicians because I, I love talking to musicians and, you know, watching interviews with musicians. And it's you see that they're channeling something. There, there's this mystical process happening where, you know, you just clear your mind enough and then things can flow through you. And I feel like writing a novel might be as close as I could ever get to that. Yeah. I mean, I know you are a musician, so maybe you've experienced that uh, in other realms. Yeah. It's but similar. but is there a similarity where when you're writing a novel, it's, you know, you start off writing one thing. You always hear writers say, you know, this character came to life, mm. you know, and then and then things started happening that I didn't expect. And there's this sort of surrender to a shamanistic uh, experience that I imagine must be so fascinating. It's utterly amazing. It's astounding. Yeah. You, you can lay it out and make a blueprint and think you're going to write a particular thing that you want to have, have a particular tone and so on. And you discover that the book starts to tell you what what can be done on the page. But then you realize, no, 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 I'm the one that's putting the words on the page. So I must somehow be telling myself what actually needs to go down on that page to make this structure that I'm creating, this thing, this yeah. gadget. You know, so I think inevitably, yes, you have to, you do reveal yourself to yourself. You find out things about yourself, I suppose. Um, they seem impermanent. You forget, and then you try to write another novel to, to, to learn it again or to go through the same set of mistakes or the same torture. Um, yeah. I've written two novels, but yeah, um, <clears throat> it's remarkable. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's never satisfying, unfortunately. You, 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 you want to be a certain person on the page and instead you end up being you on the page <laughs> all, all roads lead back to just your same squalid self same boring self the guy that can't be outrageous on the page and wanted so badly to be have you ever read the unbearable lightness of being uh, many many years ago i did yes and loved yeah. it at the time i haven't revisited it i i was just thinking when we were talking i was trying to think of of books that sort of unapologetically look at sexuality and and male sexuality in particular and uh and that's a book that really touched me because i i felt when i read it the first time like this book sort of captures a lot of the struggles around freedom you know the sort of shallow the unbearable lightness of being the 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 you can have lightness, which is, you know, hey, I'm a swinging single dude and I don't get into relationships, baby. Yes. You know, or you can have the entrapment of, you know, I've had the same girlfriend my whole damn life and man, I'm bored and, you know, and sort of that thing. But then, you know, the way he sets it against uh, Prague Spring and the sort of geopolitical yes. reflection of those same struggles brilliant. seems is so such a brilliant book. Oh God, you're, you're making me realize I've got to go back to it again. It's incredible. Yeah, incredible. I, I, I've read it five times. Wow. Yeah, I don't um, blame you. No, it's amazing. Yeah, it's been a while though. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, time to go back to it. Yeah. So so the voice. Yes, the voice. This is the voice. Yes. Why, why that title? This is the voice. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I could not figure 
a title for this damn thing. <laughs> and so my agent, who apparently watches this TV show, The Voice, the competition uh, contest show, uh, okay. I gather there's a song. There's like a theme song, This Is The Voice. I didn't even know that. And I learned this uh, doing someone else's uh, podcast the other day where they said, so you know that that's a... Actually, it wasn't a podcast. It was just an interview for a radio. But um, he said, yeah, you realize that that's a song, right, from that show? I said, no, I had no idea. But I know my, my agent was always trying to get me to watch that show, and I never somehow could. Um, so that's why it's called This Is The Voice. It's really almost just a label as opposed to a title. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask if your next book is going to be called This Is John Colopinto's Next Book. It could it could easily be. It could easily it, it be. Maybe. So I was um, I, I am not good at languages. Uh, it's it's one you know one of those humbling things uh, that I, I learned over the years that I'm I think I'm pretty good at English, but that's it. When I was in Thailand, I was stuck in Bangkok for a couple months at one point, and I decided to learn Thai. Mm-hmm. Like, why not? I'm wow. in Thailand, wow. and uh, so I some some. You know, pretty young Thai university student offered to teach me Thai, and I was like, "Hell yeah!" And the first class, she explained tonal language. Oh yes, and how it was like Y Chi is different from Y Chi, and Y Chi and Y Chi. So there are four ways to say Y Chi, and they mean four totally different things. That was the last class. It was like, okay, there's no way. There's no way I am ever gonna like figure this out, um, and and I've I've often wondered since then we have this uh, understanding of Asians as being sort of like emotionally unexpressive, mm. you know it's the cliche stereotype mm. of of Asian people, and I I wonder to what extent that's a function of tonal language. Because you can't get excited when you're talking or it changes the meaning of the words. Interesting. Although, if I understand tonal languages correctly, because they're not singing uh, the note on a, on a specific pitch, i.e. not A flat, you know, it, 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 you can move the register entirely up. It's all relative pitches within the word. So you could conceivably say, ma, but you could also say, ma. So it, you just have to make that same transition downward in pitch. So you, your voice right. actually can ride emotional swells and pitch rises and, and lowerings. Or you should be able to and still maintain those things. So, you know, I, I think that wouldn't be an explanation for why some people might hear less prosody, as the expression, as the word is, prosody from the Greek toward music towards singing which is how we all talk um that might be why people hear perhaps less prosody emotional and expressive prosody uh I, I, that's just a guess uh i mean it wouldn't be because of the of the tonal language factor it would be something right. else and i what that is i don't know so I'm, I'm wondering i mean in a larger sense what i'm trying to think about is is consciousness reflected in language or constrained by language or liberated by language um 
You know, like, like I, I listened to your interview with Dave Davies mm. uh, the other day, driving through a blizzard. It was really interesting. I turned on the radio. It was like, John Colopinto. Like, John, John, <laughs> I know John. Um, but uh, I, I remember there was a point in the interview, I, I don't remember exactly what you guys were talking about, but I think you were talking about vowel sounds and how there are particular vowel sounds and how they're shaped by the tongue and all this. Yes. And I was thinking about the um, the people in Botswana that that I saw and, and spent some time with a few years ago who have you know clicking language. Oh yes, yeah. And and like in our language, yes, there's tongue placement and there's there's constriction of vocal cords and so on. But we don't do that clicking and popping and you know. Yes. So some language utilizes parts of the body that that our language actually doesn't. Yeah. You know. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering if you got into how that interacts with consciousness. Wow. That, that's not a good question. No, it's a good question because I didn't approach it from the view of consciousness per se, but I did from the view of culture. It didn't make it into the book. Let me immediately say. Um, and culture is consciousness, I think, or it's, it's, it's an expression of, a, of, let's say, a national consciousness. So let's say we're talking about Americans or, or people in the UK. There was a, a writer on language named Jesperson, hugely influential at the beginning of uh, the 20th century. Um, Otto Jesperson, he was the guy. And he, he had tons of fascinating linguistic insights that are still hold true today. But what no one will talk about, talk about PC-ness, they won't talk about what he said about how the sounds of languages, the very things you're talking about, clicks and so on and vowel shaping, how that reflects national character. Now that sort of goes a little bit to consciousness, um, the sorts of consciousnesses that we share as Americans or Brits, Canadians and so on. And his point was, I mean, it was very politically incorrect. He talked about how, like, uh, certain, I think it was Filipinos, they, they're infantile sounding, and he, and he talked about particular sounds, how they're closer to baby sounds, and how, in mm. fact, we, and it is true of English, that it's very plodding. We are not a tonal language. Most languages are. We don't use that type of music within a syllable. Um, our, our, the rhythms of it blonk along rather boringly. We tend to stress the first syllable of two-syllable words, baseball, and so on. Um, and he, his point, Jesperson's point was just, you know, this is because we're such a business base. It's the language of business and commerce. Mm. It's down to earth. It's, it's, yeah, so it's functional and utilitarian. French, he heard something very different in that musicality, the sexiness of it, uh, the poutiness, all of that mm, purring and pouting. Yeah. And, and what about German? I mean, I, do, I, did you hear about that unpleasantness back in the 19, uh, thir late 30s and 40s in Germany? It was terrible. No, I mean, you know, so you've got you've got a, a country that's that's guilty of the worst, you know, sort of organized genocide, cold blooded that we've ever heard of. And their language sounds like that. So, I mean, Jesperson didn't say that, but he hinted at it back in like the beginning of the say he anticipated it all with that sound of German um, so I don't know if that exactly goes to consciousness I think in a way it does this this idea that there's a very close fit between how we sound and and how we think and I mean literally sound I don't mean the words but literally yeah. as you say the clicks and the whatever the hums and the pops and so on there is some kind of yeah. fit I think but like a pussy 
I didn't go there in the book. I didn't include the Jesperson stuff. I mean, it's partly length. I wanted to, and then I would have put the disclaimer saying this is all, of course, discredited. But I would have at least introduced <laughs> it into the reader's mind and probably should yeah. have. Probably should have. It's, it's such an interesting point. You know, I, I've lived in Spain most of my adult life. And uh, so I, I like listen to the way people talk in a way I wouldn't if it were my native language, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to the sounds and 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 you're right I really think I've spent a lot of time thinking about how much it seems that French people for example enjoy speaking French oh, it's as if they're savoring wine yeah, as they speak nicely put shit you know, and Americans, we don't do that. It's just transmit information, goddammit. Exactly. You know, the art but, of the deal, man. We got to cut this deal. Got to get to yes. The Getting to yes. What's the bottom it? line? Exactly. What's the bottom line? <laughs> but, you know, I, and strangely, I think British people seem to enjoy speaking British in a way that we don't. I would, I would agree. Particularly upper class. Yeah. You know, there's, yes. there's, there's like a, you know, a, a way of sort of drawing out a word that's saying like, as I'm drawing out this word, I'm showing you how sophisticated I really am. Absolutely. But don't forget Cockney rhyming slang, where they're actually right. having fun with the sounds yeah. by rhyming them and playing with them. So I would say that's across the whole society. That's really interesting. Good point. Have you thought? Like, I know you guys were talking about accent on the on the Fresh Air episode I listened to, which is really interesting because apparently, I think maybe you mentioned this. Some animals seem to have accent. Correct. Um, yeah, birds and, and yeah, really. You you can tell where they're from, what terrain they're from yes. by the the song, right? Exactly, because birds are the only species besides us that learns its vocal sounds from its parents, and we forget that. Huh. We th- if you take a dog, the dog is born, you sequester it from all dog sounds. It will bark, it will growl, it will whine exactly like every other dog. The sounds are hardwired. Same will happen with a cat, a bear. A mouse, a whale. Uh, I think whales. Well. I think you know, whales. I might be wrong. In fact, I, that's a, a missing thing in the book. Actually, I should have dealt more with um, uh, sea mammals. But anyway, um, birds like us literally learn their language from hearing their parents, and they do exactly what we do. They babble, and ornithologists call it babbling, and then they slowly perfect the. Their specific species bird song, and what's fascinating is it's the males that do this because they do all the seducing with the voice, and in that beautiful way that nature always sees. And the one person that they get the girls and actually get to have the babies and patch up their genes. So it's all oh my garage band is jumping down. Um, uh, it's it's all about um, uh, learning the perfect way to keep the species going through the sounds that you learn from your parents, which is probably what we're doing in learning how to speak. And we do it exactly the same way. That's fascinating. So if you took a bird uh, and ha- and switched it from the nest, so if you took a robin and switched it and, and somehow got the crows to raise it, do you think that robin would then make crow sounds? Is that... Yes. Well, Darwin learned that they do that. That's what happens. And so a certain amount of the uh, of the sounds and and I think even the bird song, but don't take that to the bank without checking uh, on in a with an ornithologist. But I believe a certain amount of sort of the melody Mm. is kind of hardwired. And 
But if you and Darwin literally talked about this in the origin of species or maybe the descent of man, if you take that bird from where it would ordinarily be raised amongst its fellow singers that sing the same species song, if you move it to another area where birds have a different song, it will take on uh, against that that sort of inborn right. song. It takes on accents. It literally takes on the local dialect. Right. Exactly as we do. Uh, now, whether because you ask a good question, does a bird? Can you do you wipe out a finch's song and replace it with a crow's squawking if you move it at, at babyhood? That I don't know and should know, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, some birds definitely mimic, right? I mean, they, that's why we people have these birds that you know say call the cops, call you know whatever they they're saying. Absolutely. Um, and, and they seem to have an incredible vocal range. So we're talking about regional accents in this sense, um, which, you know, I've, I've always said when, when I was in Spain, I would, I would talk about how in Europe people seem to have both regional and class accent, particularly British, right? Like you can tell whether this guy went to Eton or not by the way he speaks or whether it was Cambridge or Oxford or, you know, some other, as well as possibly where he grew up. Right. So there's this class yes. and regional, whereas in America, it seems yes. to be pretty much just regional at this point. Right. You can't tell someone you know, rich guess people by the way they talk. Right. Yeah, well, yes and no. You don't hang around the New Yorker enough. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, the, uh, there's a couple of toffee-nosed writers there yeah. that are fully American. Yeah. And let me tell you, you go, wow. That's Well, that's uh, what I wanted to really get something. to because I feel like that that was more prominent before. Like you had like William F. Buckley. Where What the hell was going on with him and that accent? Right. The, I know. Well, I good question actually. There are yeah, there's sort of honking, you know, Boston Brahmin sounds that people make. There are uh, there are class distinctions, but you're quite right. We don't label them as readily and as as easily. You know, with with Britain, we feel like we can imitate you know an upper class accent because we've heard it on Monty Python or whatever. <laughs> Americans less yeah. so, but I do point to in in the book. I point to The Great Gatsby where. Gatsby says of Daisy's voice, uh, it's full of money. Uh, yeah. And we know exactly what he means. Right. So there is some way that Americans are, and who was more class conscious and money conscious than, than Fitzgerald? Uh, and as I say in the book, I think it's a book about voices because, you know, when, she ta when he talks about uh, Tom Buchanan's voice, the, the husband, he really gets into sort of the abrasive, dominant maleness of it and, and also the class conscious, the sort of class dominance of it as well. So I think these things are less talked about. They're less well described. They're less easy to mimic. But I think they do exist, and it's partly what I'm pointing out in that chapter of the book that looks at the voice in society. Mm, yeah. We cannot go without me saluting you and thanking you for saving my ass, because I... I um, did I actually send you an entire PDF of it pre-pub... Oh, yes, for a blurb, which you beautifully furnished, which is a, actually a very nicely turned blurb, very smartly turned. But you also saved my ass by saying that chimps are, are not are, chimps are not our relatives or I forget what what stupid word I had used but you very gently and so and I want this on the record in a podcast you saved my ass if you don't think that I'm happy about that you're wrong 
Well, I think I think what it was was you just you said we were descended from chimps, yes. which is so you know it's ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just made the point that we're not actually descended from them; we share a common ancestor with them, and mm. you know it's a very kind of. I don't know, esoteric distinction, but I, I know what a perfectionist you are, and, and I felt like... Oh, I was hugely grateful and, and, and a little embarrassed, although not entirely because I knew I was in waters that were unfamiliar to me. I've never, like, taken an anthropology course and actually never written about evolution before, and the book is strongly angled towards how our language and speech evolved and so mm. i was in territory that was was unfamiliar fascinating to me and i loved I, I knew the broad outlines of darwin's theory of natural selection evolution by natural selection but but there was all sorts of stuff about our primate ancestors and our, is ancestors the right word our, our precursors i'm going to say um, yeah well they're, they're ancestors yeah, sure. uh, yeah I, but i knew you know this stuff and and so uh I was just grateful for you pointing out where I was. I was just uh, infelicitously using a term, which was great. And I thank you. Well, for that. no, I, I'm, it's my pleasure. And and believe me, you know, probably 20 people would have noticed it. You know, <laughs> that's 20 primatology too many. readers. Uh, yeah, but that's hey, 20. Listen, yeah. We we haven't even talked. We, it's funny because the very beginning of this conversation, I said, let's talk about the Pinaha. And then we wandered off and never even talked about oh, that's that. so funny. I've recommended that article to so many people. Um, and I've tried to get Daniel Everett on the podcast, but he hasn't answered any of my emails. Oh, wow, I could put a word in his ear. You guys uh, really well, should talk. You you don't you you're not dissimilar as guys. Yeah. Um, in, incredibly smart guys that wear your erudition, erudition uh, unpretentiously. Uh, oh, you you well, remind me very, you. and you're not even physically. You're kind of similar, weirdly enough. So yeah, he should definitely do it. Yeah, I would. I would love to talk to him. Don't sleep. There are snakes. Is one of my favorite books. I've read so many times. Great title too. Uh, right? And some interesting, interesting commentary on sexuality in that book too. Uh, Big time. Even, yeah, there's some. He he covers some interesting ground there. Yeah. Anyway, listen. Uh, I, I know you're super busy. Maybe when when this media frenzy wears down and you feel like having a chat, I would love to have you back on to talk about some of the things we missed this time. I would love it, man. This has been so much fun. I got it was too much fun because I, you know, I didn't talk enough about the voice, but we used our voices and people could just sort of extrapolate <laughs> from there. They can sort of say, "Oh, yes, that's how voices work." <laughs> that's it. Ne next time you can come on and talk about the book that we were supposed to talk about this time. <laughs> it's uh, so great. It's like Tristram Shandy that we kind of, in the final seconds, we mentioned the book. I love that. It makes yeah. it even better. It's great. Yeah. You ever read uh, Jeff Dyer's work? Do you know his? No. He wrote, he's a, he's a great writer. He's a friend of mine, a really good guy. Um, he wrote a book called Out of Sheer Rage, which is a book about trying to write a book about D.H. Lawrence. Oh, I love it. Oh, so that's he, cool. you know, he he got the book contract to write a book about D.H. Lawrence to retrace his steps, but he ends up not actually writing about D.H. Lawrence. He writes about the process of trying to write about D.H. It's very I'm, meta. Well, I mean, I love it. And, and again, just to plug my book, weirdly, the first chapter of my book about the voice was my panic about having to write about the voice and literally saying to my editor, it's not possible to do. And I go through the process of how I figured out I couldn't get it out of my mind, though. And so I 
actually go through the process of how I would sort of free associate on the page for weeks at a time and did all this reading. And actually, I worried a little bit that it was a little bit up my own ass. It was a little meta. But then I realized, no, this is a book about the voice, which is about speech, which is about language, which is about beaming thoughts from one brain into another on ripples of air. Well, reading and writing are really just a simulacrum of that. It's a way of taking those sounds and putting them on a page. So I began to realize, no, it's not indulgent to talk to my reader about how difficult it was to figure out how to structure this or even whether it was possible because voice is simultaneously too narrow and too wide a subject. It's very paradoxical. How does a writer get his hands around it? And in sort of taking my reader behind the curtain to show them how I got there, seemed I suddenly realized and I'm always having to do this with my writing. I have to justify why I'm writing a particular section. But I ended up feeling that even my rather long acknowledgments, which are quite a, it's quite a long section at the end, I thought, now, is this indulgent? And I thought, no, for the same reason that I'm, I'm telling my reader how it is I ended up being able to do this not undifficult and even unlikely feat of writing a narrative-driven book about the I'm a storyteller as nature made him was all about stories so was the Peter Han thing and unless I can see a story and that's why evolution was important to this book amongst other things but unless I can see story structurally you know and even have a little tilt of suspense then I can't write the thing so that the book was about that doing that figuring that out and yeah and I really had a lot of people to thank you should have been one of them although I'm doing it now See, it was too late in the yeah. game. I had already yeah. written my acknowledgments, but uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's fine, John. You'll get me in the next one. I will. You know, another one of the things I I, I wanted to talk with you about. We can say for for part two. Uh, by the way, you should do a podcast. You'd be a great podcast host. I would love to do it. I, I don't know actually that I have the wide, well, sort of wide knowledge that you do, so that I could riff off of things. I mean, I, just on. not sure. I mean, I'm a bit of a ham, and I and I am verbal. But I don't know if that's enough for a part. And also, you know, the territory, as you know, is so is so well traveled now. And you were so smart and visionary in getting in early because I think you're early. Um, yeah, I, you know what? I, I, listen, well, I have to say I, I'm grateful that you said that. I'm flattered. But I think, and you know this, uh, you're being too modest. It's way harder than people think. I don't know how you do it, and you you really do it well. I'm not blowing smoke. Well, I, I think it's hard for someone for whom it doesn't come naturally, but that's my point. I think it comes naturally for you. Well, that's nice of you to say. I mean, I love you doing know. it. Well, I mean, I do love doing my journalistic interviews. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and you know a lot of interesting people through your... I mean, th those were the keys for me when my friend Duncan, uh, eight years ago or something, said, eh, you should do a podcast. His point was, you like talking, you're good at it, you like listening, and you know lots of interesting people. Yeah. So, like, yeah. there you go. I mean, that's wow. pretty much all you need. Unbelievable. And uh, Unbelievable. the technology is easy. I'll, I'd be happy to to run you through it. Anyway, your battery's dying. You're so right. It's, it's now got the red look. You know, the battery, it's actually it's saying 13%. Uh -oh. it's, it's so scary. It's like a Bond film where we've got to diffuse. But we have to figure out how to end the conversation before it blows up. <laughs> exactly. Because if we lose your recording, then we've only got me talking for an hour and a half. There you here. go. Um, um, but Chris, this was so fun, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and next time, one of the things I really want to talk about is writerly voice. Oh, right. Because yeah. you were just talking about how, you know, 
how we express ourselves and how on the page it's a uh, sort of a reflection of of speech, but there is one of the things that writers struggle to find is their writerly voice, yeah, right? Absolutely. So that someone can read it and say, "That's John Colapinto yes. writing." I can tell, and it's like it's such an interesting thing. You know, I think about this in terms of guitar. You can hear a few licks yes. and say, "Carlos Santana." Yes, you know, yep. no doubt. Yep. Uh, that's Jimmy Page. That's Hendrix. Yep. How many people have played the guitar, oh, and know. you know it's, it's them? Crazy. It's crazy. That is crazy. No, I know. And there is there is a crossover somehow with prose, although it's so weird. With something like guitar, it's not unlike voices. It it is physical and it's a gesture. So how hard you hit the string, when you attack the string, those are all things that are sort of encoded in your nervous system. They're kind of defined and constrained somewhat by those sort of aspects of temperament. How you attack a conversation when you jump in. Mm how hard you even hit those puzz and cuz and does and those notes writing however my god it's black marks on a page you're not there's not a physical or seemingly there's not an obvious physical dimension to it so i i know for myself that it's very it would be very hard for me to say what it is that gives writerly voice but it does have something to do there is a laid-back way of writing there's a non-attacking tone i don't know these things are deep mysteries i would love to talk with you about them sometime i'd have to give them some thought but it's it's a thing yeah Yeah. it's amazing yeah all right john i'm gonna let you go before your battery dies Dude, thank Uh, you thank you it was so fun Let's uh, book is the, do it again. This is the voice. But I mean, my my thing is what I want my audience to take away from this is that you are a really interesting, smart, cool guy and they want to read all your books. So wonderful. It's not just about this is the voice. That's the latest one. But I would check them all out. OK, mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. OK, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, Civilized to Death design. They're all Civilized That's right. to Death. We have stickers. And car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. 
Won't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. It's a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.